Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I am Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. And this is our first ever afternoon record, and we have noticed an energy shift mm-hmm. in the way we are recording. We normally record in the morning when the sun is out, Birds the are days singing. ahead of us. Everything is possible. Anything. Now, we're late afternoon. Nothing's possible. Now that we've got the emails, a few things have gone wrong. Maybe had a heavy lunch. <laughs> I did. I did overeat for lunch. Yeah. And Subway so. sandwich is heavier than it should be. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. But we're ready. We've got this. But t- we're here. We're here. Tasha, this, this, the topic today was made for you. I'm excited for it. I got real nerdy about it. I know. When I saw the topic come in, I was like, I'm good. Just sit back and let me go. <laughs> I'll be right back. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah. Before we get into our great topic, yeah. which is about how to be a writer on set, mm-hmm. on the set of a TV show specifically, uh, we have some This Week's in Writings. This Week's in writing. This. We can write in. I have something. I'm just going in. Okay. So I the other week I saw the Blue Beetle movie, the DC. Uh-huh. And let me tell you, Tasha. Tell me. It pulled at the heartstrings. I cried. Yeah. It was the first superhero <gasps> movie I cried in. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, me too. I um with a little asterisk next to this, I did see it at the iPick, and mm-hmm. I did have like a glass or two of wine. <laughs> So that's so, that's how to loosen your emotions a little bit. A little bit. I was I was but I it was a really great movie. I'm sad that I don't know what's going on in DC. I don't know what's going on with superhero films, but it really went back to it had some Iron Man uh heart to it and mm-hmm. I really appreciated that it it was very character heavy and yeah. I really like that about this movie and I wish it got a little bit more love, but it's worth seeing and it's a it's a good reminder of of you know, just really writing to character. I feel like it's a tough movie to market because the first trailer I saw was like, I'm so excited for this movie. By the time the second one came out, which is the second trailer now is always more extended edition, oftentimes telling you the entire movie, which is endlessly frustrating. Mm-hmm. By the time that came out, I was like, oh, this movie looks like every other superhero movie with just a different guy in the suit. But mm-hmm. the first one felt unique and it felt homey and special. Um, so you felt like the movie kind of fit into the, what the first teaser made me feel? A little bit more. I'd say 60%. But it did okay. have some, like, the, the standard superhero tropes. And, you know, it, That's it went... That's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. I'm sure maybe a little studio note or two in there, you know, make it, make yeah. it a little more studio friendly. However... It's a good movie, and okay. I hope it doesn't get lost in the bigger picture of DC. Okay. So I didn't really... That wasn't a writing thing, but it was something. That's a, this, this, yeah. I mean, since you're talking about movies, I'll talk about my This Week in Writing movie thing. Yeah. I saw Nimona, mm. and before that, back to back, I saw Pope's Exorcist. Nimona on Netflix, Pope's, Pope Exorcist on somewhere. I think also on Netflix. Oh, okay. Both on Netflix. Okay. 
That's it's entirely possible. Yeah, I was stuck in a hotel room in Vegas because of the hurricane that didn't destroy anything. But yeah, I I Pope's Exorcist, if you recall, is at this point I, I don't even remember when it came out. Um, but a while ago, and it stars Russell Crowe as an Italian, <laughs> Italian, full speaking Italian priest who is the primary exorcist for the pope and he like tackles a case that the church has been afraid of for centuries yeah and everything up to the third act was so engaging yeah and so good have you seen it i have did you like it i did yeah i thought it was different i did too (laughs) (laughs) and then the third act it just like becomes a massive cliche and it's whatever yeah yeah, it ends But the hook is also fun. It's unfortunate the third act like leads to this cool hook. But the the hook at the end is like, surprise, there is this underground cabal of priests who are, it kind of reminded me of like the warehouse in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like we have all these secrets that we're categorizing and you've just discovered like the location and the names of like all 200 something fallen angels. Are you prepared to take this task upon yourself, Russell Crowe and try and combat all of them? And he's like, are we priests that friend that I made during this movie? Let's do it. (laughs) I think that's awesome. I I remember feeling somewhere in the movie. I was like, are are we going to sympathize with a demon? Like, I remember they were going in some directions where at remote, there were some things that happened. You should, anyone who's listening, if you haven't seen it, you should just see it just because of, it's different. It's different. It, it takes some swings. Yeah. Yeah, I was super into it. Um, and then Nimona is also different and also takes swings and is also fantastic. I, I just want everyone to go see this movie because nobody, like, just wasn't marketed at all. Yeah. And this is a, a, a comic book or a graphic novel that came out. The graphic novel is also fantastic and expounds on what's in the movie. So, like, if you watch the movie and are intrigued, like, go, go read it. Um, I remember picking it up because just the cover art interested me at a Comic-Con I went to years ago and then was so obsessed with it. I took it to Warner Brothers when I had a meeting there and was like, hey, um, I know you have the rights to this. I'd like to adapt it. And they're like, yeah, sorry, someone's already on that and they're mm. much better than you. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so whatever, I, I left and, and Evan Spiliotopoulos is one of the writers credited on it. That's who they said was was writing it at the time. And yeah, it's this really great animated movie. Yes. And the reason I said it was on Netflix earlier is because no one has heard of this movie. And it actually reminds me of the movie The Sea Beast, which is a movie that I happen to love. Went under the radar, animated film by one of the directors of um, Moana. And this movie was awesome. And I, I still I, haven't seen that one, but I meant to. You know, kill, you know, this is the streaming world, you know, right? Like this is things get lost, like really great things, um, which just, I don't know. I don't know how it makes me feel. Cause I don't know if I would have seen Nimona had I, I like, I just happened to stumble upon it. Right. Like that's yeah. how it works on Netflix. I, I just wish that wasn't the case, but me too. Cause this is, this is not one of those like shitty animated movies that <laughs> sort of aren't advertised yeah. because they're bad no. and that you're, you're only your kids will watch like, and you put it on the background to keep them occupied. Like this was engaging. It's so, so good. It's so funny. It's so smart. The cast is great. What's cri- what's interesting about it is I feel like animated films do really well because it's a reason for parents to take their kids out. They yeah. always do really well in theaters. And I wonder, I just wish Netflix would throw animated films out. I just, I don't know. It's like super it. smart of them to do that. Yeah. 
I'm going to say something else is just a quick passing thing. I just wanted to just remind everybody of something. I was reading about the Joyride movie. Yes. And I forgot it started as a spec script called The Joy Fuck Club. Oh. It's just a reminder. Right respect. Yeah. Do you have it? I want to read it. Maybe we'll do a script club on it. I would love that. I would love that too. Okay. Okay. Moving on. Okay. Um, I have another this week in writing. Is that okay? Yeah. So I did a music and a sound spotting this week for Tomb Raider. And I just wanted to talk about them. Can I talk about them? Fucking tell us everything. (laughs) Go. I want to (laughs) know. So the music spotting was you sit down with the composer. This was all over Zoom. And you go through an episode. And there's always temp music already in the edit of an animatic for your show. And so you kind of go through and you're like, this temp music this is what I would say to the to the composer is like this temp music is really working because X, Y, or Z. Like it's really giving us the the nice adventure feel, but it's very one note. Like I would love for this to have a kind of a three act structure to really guide us through the movie in a more engaging way. And she's like, Yep, got it. Yep, got it. Yep, got it. Or like, I'd really like this moment to highlight like the sadness mm. that Lara is feeling here, as an example, because the temp music doesn't do that. She's like, Yep, I hear you. Got it. Let me ask you. So you're giving thoughts on music. That must be really difficult, right? Because you're, you're like, you're like. Because me especially. Like, well, not, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about music, you guys. Yeah. I don't know. I could not tell you like the difference between a piano and a drum. Like I, yeah. if I heard it, I'd be like, same instrument. <laughs> so are you saying you're like, I want it to sound like, and then you like sound out the, the, the noises. You're like, boom, boom, boom. Hell no. I have no skills to that regard. And if you do, God bless you. Um, But it's more like I explained the the way I want to feel or the way the characters are feeling. And because I know she is the expert, I let her, the composer, be like, yep, gotcha. I know exactly what you need here. No problem. And then eventually she'll send back you know, her V1 essentially, and I'll go through it. And then I will give notes on like, yeah, it's not quite fun enough is something I might say, or like, we're not quite feeling the adventure. And particularly at this moment, like at this moment, the, the tone should shift and it should be like really, really fast and really fun. Like those are notes that I could give, but definitely not like, here's the sound specifically, or here's an instrument I want to hear. Nothing like that. Cause that's her job and her expertise, not mine. I'm so excited. I can't wait for you to be like, well, I need a more, like a deeper, deeper bass. Oh my gosh. I don't know if I will ever get there. You have to get there. I'm so dumb when it comes to music. Not at all. It's like giving notes. Could you imagine someone giving you notes and they're like, you know, make this better. They should. But that's exactly right though, right? Like an exec trying to tell you how to write a scene versus just being like, I'm not feeling sad here. And I know you want me to. Like, that's the note you'd want to give because then I understand, okay, I need to make you sad. Rather than having them tell me how to make you feel sad, you don't know how to make you feel sad. I know how to make you feel sad. It's so crazy how important music is. Like, the, even the music cues, they don't do this too much anymore in movies or shows. But when there's like a bad guy or bad woman coming in and it's mm. like, you know, it's like sinister music. And you're like, yeah. oh, that's the bad guy. And, and it's just so important. You just know. We talked about that. We were like. We got to this point where the villain came on screen and I was like, do we have a theme for the villain? Because we should. She's like, we should. Oh, shit. We have a (laughs) theme. We're going to have this fun stuff. It's going to be, the soundtrack's going to be so great. Is Lara Croft going to have a theme? Damn straight. 
Yeah, like an Indiana Jones. Hell jo- yeah. John, did you, were you like, give me some John Williams meets Hans Zimmer meets uh, everyone else just in one. <laughs> she was like, okay, no problem. Make her like Indiana Jones, but better. More yeah. adventurous, more badass. Just do do just better. No, I'm just kidding. Just no. do better. No, no, no. it's going to be so good. Like, I want the CD of this. The album? The CD? I don't know. <laughs> See, this is... This Jesus, is, Tasha. <laughs> It's 2023, man. <laughs> I You're like, don't know. Can you mail me the 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 CD so I can hear the sound? <laughs> the CD, man. Album? I want. I just want to listen to it. I just had this vision of you and Paul driving, and Paul's like, "Hey, can you put some music on?" You like pull out that CD book and start yeah, flipping big, through. <laughs> You're like, we don't I'm, even have a I CD have player. Each is a different genre, which you like to listen to. <laughs> well anyway i'm excited i'm excited for that too i'm not done yet though we also had a sound spotting <laughs> which was totally different <laughs> and i'm specifically talking about this as of this week in writing because here's how i think you prepare for sound spottings in terms of your writing career um so sound spotting was the same exact thing as i did with the composer but now all of the music was taken out of it and you're focusing only on sound effects so like background sounds the sound of footsteps the sound of water dripping or whatever Mm. and so i started thinking about how do you prepare for this as a screenwriter and it felt like a way to hone this skill is to watch something but pay attention to different things each time which is actually something a professor of mine made me do in college um, when i studied film and it was so helpful and so educational Um, I would say to make it easy on yourself the first time you do it, watch something that you're very familiar with maybe or something that you love already, maybe a pilot because that's shorter. Um, And then let's say you watch it the first time and just pay attention to the soundtrack. Like what is the music doing? Ignore all of the dialogue, ignore all the sound effects. What is the music doing at certain points? How is it doing that? Where, why, how is it making you feel? Like write that stuff down. For example, like I think of... The, the beginning of Readers of the Lost Ark, where it's like kind of quiet the entire time India's hiking through the woods. But I recall like the music really picking up when he walks into the light and reveals his face for the first time, right? Like I remember the music making me feel like that was a very epic moment. Yeah. Um, then when Indiana Jones goes into a temple, like the music might be slower, right? It might be more mysterious. It might make you feel like there's danger ahead. Well, how is it doing that and why? Like think of those things when you watch it and then go back, start at the beginning, go again. Now this time, don't pay attention to this, to the music. Don't pay attention to the dialogue. Only pay attention to the sound effects. So like when someone walks into a room, what do you hear? What about the sound effects makes you feel a certain way? Like maybe Mm. this person is angry and you kind of only know that by the way they walk into a room. Pay attention to like the the background sounds that are happening. What are the world effects that are making you feel maybe that this place has a sense of wonder? There's a sound that's making you feel that way, not just the visual. Kind of try and figure out what that is. And that I think will help you when you go on and do these because it's so fun. (sighs) That's awesome. It is crazy to think about how many sound effects happen and just things. And if, if you watch it, you, you realize the music, sound, everything you're talking about is actually much more ingrained in your movie or your TV show than you actually could ever imagine. Yeah. Like it's, it's there all the time. 
Do you write sounds into your scripts? Like pop. Yeah, but also like atmospheric sounds. Like sometimes you need like pop or knock knock in order to just understand what's happening. Yeah. Or to like lead you, transition you, the reader into something. But do you do sound effects in your scripts? Not really. I mean, with the exception of like, it's a windy night, which I've never written before. The only reason I would put that probably is to then pay off like someone dropping something and the wind blows it. Right. (laughs) Right. So do you? Sometimes. But one time particularly stuck out to me when I did it, which was in my script, The Woman, Mm. which will never get made. Mm-hmm. Because it's an Arthurian fantasy show, and there's too many of those out there right now. Mm. But I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read a section of it because oh. it made me think of it. I'm gonna Let's do go. It. Let's do go. it. I brought it up. So this this came to me because I went hiking once at Joshua Tree, and at the peak of this hike, I just kind of listened, just stood there for like five to ten minutes, probably because I was breathing too hard, <laughs> needed to calm down. And I just listened to the way that the earth sounded out in the middle of nowhere. And it struck me that the wind out in the middle of nowhere sounded like waves crashing. And I thought that was really interesting that like that was the sound of silence in a way. Mm. And so when I wrote The Woman, when we open with the woman, she is the this person who is the blacksmith, this kind of like hermit blacksmith who creates the sword and the stone, essentially. And when we meet her, she's out in this bog at dawn. There's nobody around. And because like I wanted to express like how alone she was, I remember that I wrote a lot. I wrote this like Joshua Tree memory into it. So... I'm really embarrassed, but I'm going to read it because I feel like it's important. To yeah, no, don't be embarrassed. Write a sound effect. I'm going to steal it. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay. Uh, exterior bog, dawn. A stretch of, of marshland that ends at a horizon, aglow with the fiery light of sunrise. The silence at this hour is alone and empty, but also deep and consuming like the dawn of time. What sounds like a wave crashing down is just the wind howling through the valley. Then we see a form moving far away. We make out the bare shape of a person kneeling in the mud. That's it. So like, that is the only time I can recall like very specifically writing in a sound. And I feel like if I went on to go produce this, that would be important. Like- I agree. I I would just make sure that we had this sound very specifically. (laughs) Two very, three things. Number one, you're absolutely right. That's a very specific sound that, uh, thank God you did peyote and stood on top of a rock at Joshua Tree to hear that sound. <laughs> number two, <laughs> number two, hearing that gives me flashbacks of reading The Woman, and I really wish it was made because I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in. I'm all in. I miss that script. Me Maybe. too. Just bring it back. Just Maybe bring like it back. 20 years or something. <laughs> and then number three, I do think what if I write something with sound, it's always uh, important to mark silence. And I feel like I've seen that in mm. scripts. Um, like it's, it's just a completely silent night. That's such a, like an atmospheric thing that you just get when you're in the middle of nowhere and it's just nothing. It's just blankness and, and, um, you know, or you're in the middle of the woods or whatever it may be. So I think that's very important. Yeah, I agree. Very quick spec check. Cause I know our topic is long, but I want to, I want to check in on the spec check. For sure. Energetic. I'm back. My spec, I'm back and moving. Uh, I, I've, I've got my sights set on this one spec that I've been working on and I'm very excited about it. And 
I'm I'm not as far as I want to be, but I'm I'm pushing forward, and um, I'm going to be done sometime. I'm excited, but I buy that. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I, I felt it. Like whatever darkness was hanging over me has had. I've pushed it away. Maybe it's because I know where your spec check is going, and I was like, you know what? Someone else is writing. Oh my god, I have permission to do the same thing. So how's yours going? <laughs> I've written because I got stuck in Vegas, and there's nothing I could do except like eat and write in my hotel room. Um, that's what I did, and I almost wrote the entire first act in one day and it was amazing it felt so good yeah um also because i'd like put i'd laid down sort of the tracks of a few scenes and i hated it like the dialogue was shit it was so boring and i went in and i chopped it up and i just made shit more interesting and it felt good again and so um i actually am going rogue here and next week um i'm going away for like four days without my husband or my Mm. dog and I'm just going to go right. And I'm so excited. Like, I plan yeah. to finish the entire thing. Yeah, I think you should. Listen, a couple of weeks ago, we had on Jeff Howard. And yeah. he still made that comment. Uh, he made the comment that him and Mike Flanagan had written four, three scripts in four months or four scripts in three months, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And after hearing that, I was like, I got, I got, I got to learn to write. Like. <laughs> Yeah, no joke. It was very anxiety-inducing to hear how quickly he writes. But I wanted to say, there was context to it that if you listen to the whole episode and you put the pieces together, might help you. Wherein he talks about how much Mike and he just like watched movies, broke them down, and talked about the movie ideas they had for like months before they actually sat down in those four months to write three scripts. Not that that's still not incredibly fucking impressive, but what the point is when you set your mind to it, I don't mean to sound like George McFly, but when you just decide to do something and you are not like you hold yourself accountable, you can't let anyone down but yourself. And if you're like, I'm not going to let that happen, then you're off. You got to do it. And I think you have four days. What could go wrong? I agree. Okay. I'm ready to come back with a full script. I will not be done. It's, it's just, it actually breaks my heart that you're going to finish a spec uh, in four days and I'm going to spec check and I'm going to be like, I wrote about a page and a half. <laughs> well, you have a wife and child. I will have nothing. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, on that note. <laughs> well, let's move into our main topic. <laughs> okay. Our topic for today comes to us from Eliza Clark, who was the showrunner of Why the Last Man. Mm-hmm. Follow her on Twitter if you don't already, if only because she has the entire document that we are about to talk about pinned to the top of her account for all to see and download. Because when Eliza was showrunning... Why the Last Man, she realized that a lot of writers in her room had never been to set, which of course is one of the problems we are facing in our industry as TV writers, and one of the reasons we are striking is that writers in a TV room are not being given opportunities beyond the writer's room to stay on their show. Particularly, we're seeing this in streaming. So you could get a job writing on a show, 
great. You have job security for, say, 10 weeks. But then after the writer's room is over, the showrunner goes on to edit all the episodes and eventually go to set and produce the show without you. So you'll never get to see how your episode gets made. You'll never understand how set functions or the challenges that you eventually yourself will face when you become a showrunner. And of course, this is all bad because it's not training this new generation of showrunners, which is bad for the companies as well, they should understand, because they're not getting qualified people to fill the shoes of the showrunners who are you know, retiring and leaving the business. I am a prime example of this being bad because I'm currently an EP and showrunner, but I have never run my own live action show, never mm -hmm. been on set for my own show. I have worked on a TV show as an assistant and been on set, and I found it incredibly boring. Um, Damn. <laughs> but I, I started as a staff writer on Witcher Blood Origin, which is the lowest a position on the totem pole in a writer's room. And then my very next thing, I became an EP showrunner on Tomb Raider and now the Mighty Nine. So I made a huge jump. Granted, I had worked a lot in features at that point. I was selling TV pilots as a creator. Um, but even then, I'd always been paired with another showrunner on these live action shows because studios knew I wasn't yet qualified to handle a multi-million dollar production. Actually, that's one of the reasons, small tangent, I was really excited when I started working with Stephen DeKnight, who... The showrunner for Daredevil at Netflix and Spartacus, we've had him on to talk about his uh, sort of how he became a showrunner over time. Um, his story is really, really interesting. Definitely check it out. And Steven is an adamant supporter of up and coming writers. Like I remember our first conversation, he was like, all right, I might be coming on, but this is your show. You're going to go to set. You're going to shadow everything that I do. Um, he himself was planning on directing a bunch of episodes. So he was like, you'll be by my side the whole time. Yeah. Maybe even after a few episodes, after you see how I do it, you can direct an episode yourself. We'll give you one in the middle so no one knows. Like you can kind of hide the ones in the middle a little bit. And this is really what allows writers to become fantastic showrunners. And I, of course, mean that in a business sense as well, because then you can learn about budgeting. You can learn about the interpersonal skills specific to set life that allow you to then manage properly but of course our show never got sold and so here i am <laughs> well you know the last couple years can we blame covid maybe there no one was going to set I, I don't know i'm just blaming things to make me feel better i think i don't know i just feel like i should say something <laughs> to you i mean to be like hey it's okay you're doing great thanks josh appreciate yeah. you yeah. All right. So back to Eliza Clark. She does this thing. Knowing her <laughs> writers had no experience, she writes this document called Being a Writer on a TV Set and shared that with everyone that was going into production with her. And so we're going to walk through an overview of that document and, again, encourage all of you to go check it out on her Twitter. Yeah. So I'm just going to get into it. I'm, just, just go. I'm going to just jump. So first thing she talks about is the concept meeting. This is a huge first step to production. I have them on all my animation shows as well, and they are really fun because this is where all the department heads get in a room with you and they go through your script page by page and ask you questions about everything you have written. So they're kind of like putting your feet to the fire. Um, at this point, you know, if you don't know your story and your characters inside and out, like you mentioned a windy day in your example, like if you don't know why it's windy in a scene, you better fucking find out fast <laughs> because yeah. you will be exposed very quickly if you don't have answers to their questions. And for me, what's fun about all of this is that until this meeting happens, 
your script is completely theoretical. It's like just in your head, it's floating around, it's kind of just like this dream of what could possibly be. But now you're in this meeting and you have practical people who have to go do practical things asking you how to actually build the thing that you dreamed up or dress the character that you invented or light this room that you completely made up from scratch. That's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Eliza goes into some really great examples of what this concept meeting could look like. She says they will read stage directions like four women on horses right up to the farmhouse, shotguns in tow and birds scatter in the trees. And then they will say birds scatter. Do we need birds? And you have to then say, well, this is why we have birds, right? Like we, we actually have birds because we want these people to feel scary when they arrive on the scene. And someone's going to say, well, why are there four horses? Do we have to have four horses? Each horse costs $100,000. And you got to be ready to be like, okay, well, yes, we absolutely have to have four horses. And this is why, mm -hmm. because three of them get killed later in episode nine or whatever. Or you can say... No, we don't have to have four horses. We can just have two if that's helpful or maybe just one. But what we do have to maybe get across is that these women are like maybe a little bit more wealthy, which is why they have horses. Like that's a, a key element to the story that needs to be um, that needs to be uh, kept for for the actual show. Can, can, will it fly if you if you say, well, yeah, the birds need to scatter out of the trees because it creates the atmosphere that I'm going for? <sighs> yes and no, because... There's something to that that draws a line, like saying that my vision absolutely has to be exactly as I wrote it. But if someone says to you, that's really expensive and it's really complicated, Josh, to have birds scatter. Yeah. I feel like it becomes your job to either say it's really important we have birds and maybe it is. Maybe it's so important because birds are like a thematic motif in your movie and you absolutely need them to stay in there because later um, in the third act, it really pays off or whatever reason that's thematic. Maybe you really do. But my approach is always in what she recommends in her document is to be like, we don't we don't need birds. If it's really complicated and it's really expensive, and they, they will only tell you that if that's the case. If they're like, birds are easy, we got you. Yeah. Then great, we get birds. But if it is really complicated, it's going to set us back or it's going to cost money where we could put money elsewhere than birds because that's a decision you have to start making, right? Like, do I want to spend my budget on bird scattering or on having more more days to shoot or yep. having a better, better cut? So then it becomes, well... This is what the birds are doing. They're trying to make you feel scared that these women these women are arriving. If you have another solution to make that feel scary, I am all ears. And you have another option, another point later, which she talks about in her document, and we'll get to, where they present their solutions and you can be like, no, you know what? The birds really are the better version. We got to sure. figure out a way to do it. And you can feel, like you can feel in your soul if this is, this is yeah. a hill to die on, I feel like. For sure. Um, like an example that I had come up recently was I wrote a scene where a character walks over a bridge and I described the bridge as being shaped like a dragon because I just wanted it to feel really cool and epic. And we got awesome. to this concept meeting. It was so cool. It was like they were walking into the mouth of the dragon. It was cool. The director was like, so, um, do we really need the bridge to be shaped like a dragon? Cause we never see this bridge again. It's not an important bridge. And I was like, well... Look, ideally it is, but if it's hard, if you're telling me you're going to spend way too much time on it, obviously we can spend time elsewhere. Just make it look cool. Just make it look epic. <sighs> yeah. I have, I have an argument <laughs> for to, to side with you, but I'm not going to. 
I mean, I think that's part of this process. It's about being collaborative. It's about checking what's really important and what's not. And I certainly could have been like, no, nope, it needs to be a dragon. And he'd be like, okay, gotcha. No, no problem. A, no, I understand. There's, there is something to be said about having things like that, that separate your show or your idea from other things. Like it's a lot of, sometimes I feel like it's the little things that make a really big difference where you're watching and you're like, someone watches it a second time and points it out. They're like, oh my God, that was great. And it just feels lived in. I'm not, I'm not advocating for some dragon, uh, uh, you know, bridge or anything. I'm just saying sometimes. Well, so the beauty of this particular, the dragon bridge case is that the location actually is really epic on its own and it does the role of what the bridge did without mm. having to waste time on a bridge. Gotcha. So like I still got the the dragon bridge feeling I wanted just in a different way. Understood. I guess. Yeah. I but you're it. totally right. Like fight for the things that feel really important to you. It's what you're there for. Yeah. Always and like you said, very important to decide if it's like a hill you're gonna die on. Because I feel like yeah. you could go too far. <laughs> yeah. But I also like for me anyways, I know when sometimes I'll write something and I just wrote it without really thinking. Mm-hmm. Like birds scatter might be something I just wrote because it's the first thing that came to mind as a as a symbol of, oh, this is a scary group of people approaching. But then if someone brings it up in the room, I could be like, hey, this is why I wrote it because I wanted it to be scary. If you have better ideas, come at me. Sure. And someone else might have a better, it's almost like a writer's room at that point. Like, please brainstorm, especially because these in this meeting will be people whose job it is for a living is to like problem solve and find really cool ways of doing something maybe that's that sort of you don't think of right a practical effect that that's not in your brain so um that's partly also why i love these meetings is because up until this point you've probably only been talking to like writers or studio creative executives and now these are people who have to actually build the things and they're going to have cool ideas to give you as well love it I also want to point out a huge thing that Eliza mentions in this section that it's okay if you don't know the answer. Because she says, for example, that, hey, um, we have this party with a bunch of international students, a few professors and some townies. How many people are in here? And like, where do you, where do they come from? Or she gives another great example, which is, uh, the character siphons gas from an Oldsmobile. Well, what year Oldsmobile does it? Does it have to be an Oldsmobile? Because we could get a deal on this other kind of car. Like, mm-hmm. well, what? Well, tell us what to do. And the writer, if you don't know, it's okay to be like, you know, I hadn't thought of that. Like, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And in the case of being a TV writer, if you're a TV writer on set for your your particular episode, she says the thing to do is to say, I don't know. Let me think about it and talk to my boss, meaning talk to the showrunner, mm-hmm. right? And then once you can have their meeting with the showrunner, they can kind of make a, an executive decision on that. And then you can go back to everyone and, and give them your answer. And I think it's important to say you don't know something. I certainly had that come up with a design on a character once where, more than once, where they're like, they, they took the character in a totally different direction than I expected. And I was like, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And I'm not having a very positive reaction to it, but I'm also not having a very negative reaction to it. So let me just think about it. It's just different. And let me get back to you. And it's totally okay because I I definitely, when I first started Tomb Raider, because I was the showrunner, felt like I always had to have the answer all the time. And that if I said, I don't know, people would find out that I 
didn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> like the imposter syndrome would come in. But I think what Eliza says multiple times in her document here is it's okay to say you don't know as long as you're going to say, I don't know, I'm going to find out, right? Yeah. That came up for me as well. Can I do another tangent that happened recently? Of course. Um, is on Tomb Raider. There was some temp music that was kind of scary. Like it had this kind of metallic sound to it that made the moment feel scarier than I had expected, than I imagined in my head. And I thought that was pretty cool because again, I don't think in sound usually. So, um, but then the sound designer, I had my spot with them this week and he was like, well, what do you want in here? Do you want what they did here? Do you like that? Do you want something else? And I was like, ah, you know, this is not my forte. Um, I don't really have an ear for it, but I can feel when something is working and here's what I like about what they did. But I told him, I was like, you are the professional. If you have a gut feeling about what this wants to be, run with it. Because just yeah. like with a writer, like if you feel something, that is your purview. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Like feel your way through it and give me, give me your best, best shot. And I just, I just told him what the intent of the moment was. Right. And I was like, go for it. Give me, give me, let's see what you got. Yeah. And I think stuff like that is important to allow your crew to do particularly if you don't know the answer to something. Yeah, I love it. Okay, her next part, she talks about location scouting. She says, prep is the opportunity to really figure out what is essential and what can be adjusted so that we can make a great piece of television within the budget we have. Television producing is about compromise and problem solving. This should not be at the expense of the creative, but often a little compromise in problem solving can make things even better. And then she goes on to give some really great examples of how a writer is useful during location sc scouting. Ooh, this is gonna be a tough one for me. <laughs> and it's interesting because like, I kind of always imagine location scouting something I don't have to do in animation, like just me going to Ireland or Hawaii or some other landscape that I really love. And that's why I set my, my thing in there and just being like, oh, this is, this is beautiful and this building is going to make my dream come true. And I think it's partly that, but it's also an ex you have like an extremely practical role on Location Scouts as well, where you are kind of the keeper of the story, right? Yeah. You know what happens in later episodes. You know exactly how you imagine like the fight scene maybe happening in front of this house. So you know that it has to be like a flat area instead of a really wooded area in front of the house because you need room for this fight scene. So like you're coming with story knowledge that maybe the other people who are in that van with you traveling from location to location don't have. They're thinking of other things. They're thinking of the budget. How much is this location going to cost? They're thinking of, is this location going to be tough to get to and tough to get the crew to? Are we going to be wasting time and energy if we shoot in this location versus someplace else? So you you come with being sort of the, the keeper of the story, basically. Yeah. And I love that. I do too. That's beautiful. She also kind of describes how it, how it feels to be on it. I'm just going to describe it real quick because I thought it was fun. She says, you will be riding around in a van with your director, a DP, a first AD, the line producer, a location manager, and occasionally a producer like me, she says, like the showrunner, or a representative from the studio or the network. And this is your opportunity to talk about the script. And this is your opportunity, really, this is me talking, to 
get to know these people because you're stuck in a van with them <laughs> traveling. You're probably hungry. You're probably tired. And you can just like make friends, yeah. important friends when you're on this trip. And that's really great. I love filmmaking. <laughs> it's so fun. It really it's is. so fun. There's something so cool about this. Yeah. She then goes on to costumes. I, I promise you I'm not going to go section by section, but I just thought this costuming section was also fun and a really great example of stuff you will have to think about when you are transferring your written thing into something producible. And I'm just going to read it because it's so good. She says, yeah. the costume designer will present ideas to you and the director about what the characters should wear in the episode. She will have thought about this extensively because this is her job. She'll ask you questions like, how long has it been since the last episode? How many days are there in this episode? How much clothing fits in their backpack? Where are they getting their clothes? When is the last time they've had a shower? <laughs> yeah. So things like this are things that you maybe don't have to think about when you're just writing your first drafts, right? But when it's time to go into production, you better know every sort of in and out of, of your story. And I know nothing about clothes. I feel like since I got married, I only wear like yoga pants and Mighty Nine t-shirts. Um, this is exactly what I'm, I'm, this is exactly what I'm wearing right now. Um, <laughs> So what's this person wearing? So uh, it's a tough question for me because I don't like similar with music. I don't come in with like a very clear visual of this person's outfit, but because I've created the world so in depth and like know it so well, if I then get a costume design or a character designer in animation um, and they, they give me the character, I know instinctively whether this outfit is right or not. And it's similar with music. Sometimes I'm not always able to like say, like there's a character recently that I was like, I'm just not getting, like she's too bland. And I don't, I can't pick out what piece of her clothing is doing this for me, but the yeah. whole thing is reading as bland and she's supposed to be a main character. So when I'm writing my character descriptions, I get hung up often on the clothing that I think they're wearing. I never uh -huh. really incorporate it unless it's incredibly important uh, to the story and the character. Like, I'm not saying she's wearing a blouse. Like, she looks great and doesn't know it. It's like not one of those right. things. Yeah, yeah. And I think this goes back to something you and I talked about, and I can't remember where it came from, but it was it was asking the question of what kind of shoes your character would wear. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, was it Quentin Tarantino talking about Robert De Niro? Like, that's, that's right. one of his things that he asks is that's right. what to kind of like trip up a writer to see if they really know their their character or not. Yeah, my, my point being is for me, knowing what clothing a character wears is so important. Mm -hmm. And I get hung up on it when writing the character, like very hung up. And if I don't know the answer to it, it's really hard for me to proceed with the scene. Yeah, I I feel like I'm torn because I don't, I certainly don't always imagine what they're wearing. I have a, again, I have a general idea. Like if you showed me a character that was wearing a different outfit than I, and again, I, I didn't imagine specifics, but I can point out like, oh, she would not be wearing a tight fitting shirt. She would be wearing a loose fitting shirt, or she would definitely be having a shirt that showed her cleavage. Like that's just who she is. So uh, you just know those things, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you think so specifically, but it can have a big role. Like we talked about in the boys with Carl Urban's character, how he wears like the Hawaiian shirt underneath a very serious like trench coat, right? Yeah. And how that was a director's choice, not a script choice, I think is the story you had told me. I think that's what I had heard through somewhere Yeah, else. I mean, because 
And that, that probably happened in these meetings, right? In these sure. prep meetings, which is great. It's cool. It's cool that stuff like that, that becomes so iconic can actually come not even in the writing process at all. Yeah. She goes on with specific examples of other prep things you have to do, like hair and makeup, for example, transpo. Um, if you have cars in your story, like driving or a car accident or anything like that. Um, extras casting, that's something you'll have to be a part of, talking to the casting director for extras. What, are, what do they look like in the background? Are they old? Are they young? Are they fat? Are they skinny? Um, props. For, for my show, I literally have to give notes on, on rocks that exist because you want the show to look a certain way. One thing I do want to highlight that she talks about in this kind of section of her document about prep is to make sure she says that, quote, the money that is being spent is going towards story. And she particularly brings this up in the cars section of like, she gave an example of, of a car chase and like crashed cars on a highway. If someone comes to you and says, this is going to be a lot of money. Do we need all of these crashed cars or can we do it with like two? Mm -hmm. Or can we even do it in a different way? And you have to decide if the money that's being spent on the five crashed cars is for a story reason or just because you think it's cool. Because if you just think it's cool, that might be enough because then the audience might think it's cool. But is if it's a make or break scenario in terms of your budget, you have to figure out if it has a story purpose. And this is also one of my favorite parts of being a showrunner and having to make these choices is this kind of problem solving aspect of it. Even though it's not necessarily a problem to anyone else except you, the writer, and your precious, precious vision for the show, once you get into production, you are going to inevitably be told that something you want is too expensive or unnecessary. And you'll definitely be offended if someone tells you something you wrote is unnecessary. <laughs> it's like everything you write feels necessary. But after I think the initial shock of getting over that, you have this kind of come to Jesus moment with yourself yeah. that I think is really cool where you're like, okay, is this getting across the core of my movie or my show or is it not? And then you, you make choices based on that. That problem solving I find to be really fun. I agree. I love making this stuff. It's great. It's so cool. It's so cool. Yeah. And then she talks about in the prep section, you're also going to talk to VFX guys and stunt guys and intimacy people. And you're going to have to talk about what is the tone of every single scene and what are we looking for in every single fight, which is really fun. Like, what do you want the tone of this fight to be? Is one character afraid um, and is maybe wanting to try to get out of the fight? Is one character trying to protect someone during the fight? Like you have those conversations so that they can then do their job and go choreograph that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we move on to the end of prep because all of that was prep before. We're at the end of prep and it's time to have your production meeting. And she says the production meeting is similar to the concept meeting, except now you are going over what has been decided in the various department meetings. So what is the alternative to the birds, for example? And you will go through each scene and each department will talk about what you all have decided on. Yeah. You also will be going through each of the locations that have been chosen to make sure everyone is on the same page. So great. It's so great. Yeah. It's so collaborative. I feel like hearing this, it's like demystifying something that I think at some point early on in a career or it's, you think that this stuff is like this magical, we're going to have explosions. And they're like, 
Great idea. We're going to do this. <laughs> awesome. We're going to have this dog run out. It's going to have a bone that's on fire, and it's going to set this other guy on fire, and then this is going to happen. And like that's how you come into it. It's like bright-eyed. And then you start thinking about what actually goes into this and making the decisions, and suddenly it becomes a much more daunting process. Yeah. And this is definitely where some people can get very disillusioned because their vision can't be translated. And then disillusioned for good reasons too, because oftentimes it's not this great collaboration. Sometimes you have huge egos or studios constraining you in ways that just make absolutely no sense for the show you all agreed you were making so that you're making choices that do feel like, right. what the fuck am I even doing here? Um, rather than making your vision better. So that's definitely part of this. These are the moments I, I'm reminded of how awesome it is to be an executive producer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should all aspire because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the same reason why they, they say, like, try to be a director if you're a writer because you just gain this kind of control over everything. Yeah. That, yeah, it's frustrating to see not in your control when it comes down to it. Okay, then she talks about script changes. So Eliza mentions you may have to do rewrites based on all of the things you've discussed in your production meeting um, that are now having to be reflected in the shooting script because this helps department heads understand what the work of the day is going to actually be. It gives the AD department the info they need to create the best schedule for everyone. It gives the actors a heads up for what they need to do on the actual scene for the day. Um, so production re rewrites become super, super practical as a skill to have. And this is, I think, where being a professional screenwriter really becomes different than being a writer in film school with a vision, right? Because in production rewrites, you have to now balance your job as a creator who does have a vision, and that's what you're there for, is to put your vision, which is what the studio hired you to do, on the screen. But also practically, you need to make sure that production is going to be not only practical, but doable, within the budget. And this mm -hmm. is a skill that's not easy. You still have to be creative, just a different kind of creative. And it really reminds me of something my manager said to me in our very first meeting, which I've talked about several times before, um, where she said that she feels like in her experience as a producer in her life, most writers tend to fit in a box where they may be really great at writing that fresh original spec. But as soon as they get notes, they're terrible at taking notes, at rewriting themselves, or they take too long to do it. There could also be writers who are terrible at writing original stuff, but really good at writing on pre-existing IP. If yeah. there's a book underlying it or another script underlying something, they got this. So she felt that finding a writer who could do all of those things was like a unicorn. And Josh and I's opinion has always been, you can work at all of those things so that you become that great writer, right? And I yeah. think this is one of those areas where it's important to know you have to work on it is the production rewrite because it's its own special thing. And the hard part is you can't really learn how to do it until you're doing it, which is why the WJ fight for this thing is so important. But maybe another way is I feel like the work we do when we look at a script versus what is produced what actually comes to you on the screen can be a helpful way to understand why they might've made those changes. Yeah. So that's a great way to maybe start looking at this skill. 
that's still something I, I struggle with. If you're sitting down, you're on a Zoom or you're a group of people and everyone's giving you the notes and, and you're just, you're like your body temperature's rising, you're getting a little worked up because people are giving really bad notes, but you have to be delicate and uh, you know diplomatic in what you're saying and things are changing and whatever. So It's a lot. It's a skill. They yeah. did, you, you have mastered the skill. You've, you've gone full Jedi. <laughs> I don't know. I still get pretty worked up if... if but more inside now it's it's more inside yeah Yeah. (laughs) uh she then goes on to talk about the table read which comes after the production meeting she talks about how that goes down which is really fun we're not going to get into it but it sounds super cool and super fun and it is so read about that um i will say that in every table read that i've been to once you're hearing the actors actually say the words and you're kind of like sensing the pace of a scene you definitely start taking down notes of being like, well, this word needs to change or this can be a lot shorter. Actors will inevitably have notes as well and you'll have to start kind of making changes according to what you hear, which is another, I think, fun part in the process because it's starting to now come alive Yeah. and the words that you had in your head sometimes don't work and that's okay. So real, real quickly about table reads, I love table reads uh, and I love them outside of, even if you're in production, if you can somehow get people together to read your script, that is a great way to hear the problems in your script. So I've, good. I've, I've been a part of it a few times and it's happened with me once or twice and it every time it's like an eye-opening experience. There should be a service through Act 2 that offers these table reads. I was literally just thinking that because one of the first groups I joined when I came to Los Angeles was a group like this where they would, they had, um, it was made up of actors and writers and they were, were all trying to make it in the industry and certain writers were chosen every month or every week or whatever, however long, however we met, we met and you would bring in a section of whatever script you were working on and then they would perform it on stage. And it was amazing because yeah. you realized it didn't work or it did or whatever. It's so, you're right. And we should totally offer the service to each Did, other. Didn't even come to me until just that moment. It's great. It's the, it's the root of it. Okay. Tone meeting also, oh. also is thrown in here. Um, and Eliza says, this is the most important thing that you as the writer will do during prep, which is big. She goes on to say, this is a meeting that you are running. This is your opportunity to walk through your episode page by page, line by line, and communicate what is most important to your director. This is a chance to talk through what the scene is about, which moments are important, make sure to highlight subtext, make clear which nonverbal moments and stage directions are important so that they don't get lost. I love this. Me too. This is so great. And if you have a director who's actually open to listening to you about this stuff, amazing. Tone is so important in any script. So, so important. So good. Uh, I love this. I know we keep saying that. Okay. Now she says you're in production. You're in it. Hopefully at this point, you and your director have a shorthand. She says you may or may not have met all of the actors by this point, but you probably will not know them very well. You will know department heads, but you may not have spent a ton of time with the crew. Try to learn people's names and what they do. There's a lot of people and no one expects you to know everyone, but it's always better when a set feels like a friendly workplace where people know each other. 
She then goes on to say, and I think this is important because it paints a scene for what your job looks like, which I think is very cool because we always see this in sort of behind the scenes featurettes, the video village. So she says, you'll be sitting in video village, which is a bank of monitors where you are watching each take. It's usually pretty close to where the action is physically happening. So the director can kind of move back and forth really easily. And she says, who's in video village? You got the director, the DP, you, a script supervisor whose job is to keep track of continuity. So like which hand did the actor open the door with, for example, and they also make notes about the script and then any other producers who might be on set will be in video village with you. I think that's just like a great scene setting that yeah. she gives you there. And she goes on in her document to talk about how to handle the scenes once they get started and stuff that might come up for you as a writer, which is like, oh my God, they're saying it wrong. Oh God, yeah, what, what, what do I do? And like how to handle that feeling, sure. what to do with it, how to talk to the director about things. Um, so definitely read all of that stuff. And again, she highlights this, this is part of the collaboration as you're working with the director at this point. It's kind of now in the director's hands to you know make this work. And so at that point, you've done all the prep, you're now feeding into the feeding any notes you have into the director so that they can kind of spit them out, right? They're, yeah. It's their turn to helm the ship. Eliza then ends with some really, really great kind of practical advice on how to handle talking to actors, which is something you're definitely going to do. Any other crew members that are on set, I would say that as a writer, when I hear other writers talking about drama they've experienced on other shows that they've been on, it often comes from this moment being handled incorrectly. Mm. So like writers being very loose-lipped or inappropriate to actors or other crew members on set, um, just like saying too much, you know, talking badly about a showrunner or someone else that they work with or other writers. If it's not your, your script that's being shot, but you're there that day, like talking bad about the writer who wrote that script, like those kinds of things. And that moment, you really do have to remember this is a job. You are yep. a manager on set if you are invited there and you have to handle yourself in that way. So she gives a lot of great details on how to behave when you're there. And then she just kind of ends with, Hey, stay warm and wear closed toed shoes. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of where she leaves off. And again, go to her Twitter, follow Eliza Clark, uh, download her document there and you can check out the more detailed version of this episode. Awesome. That was a lot, but it was reading. When you read the document start to finish, it's, because she puts so many sort of real life examples in there, it does feel like you just went through a whole shoot and yeah. you got to like see how people are doing it. It's really cool. Very helpful. All right. I'm going to wrap up quickly because for some reason I'm like really awkward with exits. I feel like, <laughs> just, all right, I'm done. <laughs> you're, that, okay, goodbye. you're that person who's like, oh, okay, well, see you later. And then you're like, yeah. wait, I didn't say bye to Tasha. She just walked out. <laughs> it's legit. Okay. Quote of the day. Don't write what you think people want to read. Find your voice and write about what's in your heart. Quentin Tarantino. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Your Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram and threads or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter, Josh Hallman on Instagram. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. Mm -hmm.